and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful day that you have given us. We thank you for the privilege of being alive. We're thankful for your word, for the privilege of being your children. And Lord, we're just so thankful for the many blessings that you've poured out upon us abundantly. We ask that as we study this lesson tonight that your Holy Spirit will guide us as he has been with us throughout the lessons before. And Lord, I ask that if there's anybody who has not made a commitment of their lives fully and completely to Jesus, that tonight will be the night that they will make that full commitment. We thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer, not because we have any merit, but because we come to your throne through the merits of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, let's delve right into our lesson. It's lesson number 19, Lessons from the Days of Noah. And uh, let's go right to the introduction. In this lesson, we want to study the cataclysmic worldwide flood of Noah's day. The reason why this study is so important is because Jesus said that it foreshadows the destruction which will come upon the world at the very end of time. He said, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be at the coming of the Son of Man. But there is more to this story than generally meets the eye. You see, usually when the story of the flood is compared with the destruction of the world, the comparison is done between two things. Uh, number one, the world was very wicked in the days of Noah, and it will be very wicked before Jesus comes. And secondly, the world was destroyed in the days of Noah, and it will be destroyed when Jesus comes. But if you studied the lesson, you'll notice that there's a far more detailed uh, comparison and typology uh, to the two stories than just the wickedness and the destruction. There's a whole substructure of events in their proper order in the days of Noah, which foreshadow what is going to happen at the very end of time. You know, the more I study uh, the Old Testament, the more I'm convinced that there is no story in the Old Testament that is simply a story. I believe that every story in the Old Testament, besides being a story, is a prophecy. And uh, as I say, the more I study this, the more amazed I am that God wrote these stories not only as events that occurred, but he wrote them in a way in which they're fulfilled on a larger scale in the future. And the story of Noah, of course, is a prime illustration from the Old Testament, and we don't have to even guess at this story, because Jesus very clearly said that as it was in the days of Noah, so also shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus made the story of Noah and the flood typological or symbolic by telling us that. Okay, let's talk about Satan's hidden pre-flood agenda. Genesis 3.15 explains that there would be warfare between two seeds. The what? The woman's seed and the, the serpent's seed. Now, let's put this on the board uh, so that we can uh, have it clear in our minds. God said that there was going to be enmity between the serpent and the woman, and between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. Then it says that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head 
and the serpent would bruise the feet of the woman on his heel. Now, we've already studied a long time ago in our first couple of lessons that when God said this to Satan, Satan was determined that he was not going to allow that seed to come to the world. And of course, when the seed did come to the world, when Jesus did come to the world and ascended to God into his throne, then Satan had to take second best, which was persecuting the church uh, or the woman into the wilderness, and then ultimately he will persecute the remnants of the woman at the very end of time. But his primary war is against Jesus. Now, let's go to question number two. Even though the seed of the woman is Christ, there are many seeds of the woman that precede Christ. In other words, this story of Genesis 3.15 is repeated many times in the Old Testament in figure or in illustration, in type, to illustrate what's going to happen when the big fulfillment takes place. And of course, the first illustration of Genesis 3.15 is found in the story of whom? Of Cain and Abel. Let me ask you, in that story, do you have a woman? Yes. Do you have two seeds? Yes. Do you have enmity? Yes. Do you have Satan? Yes, because it says in 1 John 3.12 that Cain was of the wicked one. So in other words, Cain wasn't operating on his own. He was the servant of the wicked one. So in other words, the very elements of Genesis 3.15 you have in the story of Cain and Abel. The only thing is, Eve, who is the woman in this case, only prefigures the church. And her seed, which is Abel, uh, prefigures the seed, Jesus Christ. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And this story is repeated time and again in the Old Testament. The story of Isaac and Ishmael. The story of Jacob and Esau. You know, you have this idea. You have uh, two seeds. You have a woman. You have enmity between the two seeds. And you have Satan working behind the scenes. Now, there's something which I need to mention, which is very important, and it's this. What determines whether you are of the woman's seed or of the serpent's seed is not who you are born from, but what kind of character you have. You notice that both Cain and Abel were children of whom? Of Eve. Correct? And yet the Bible identifies Cain as the seed of whom? Of the serpent. In other words, the key is not where you're born or from whom you're born. The key is what kind of character you possess by the choices that you make. In other words, being the seed is not genetic, it is relational. Now, let's go to question number two. So far, so good? In the story of Cain and Abel, Abel was the... Christ was the seed of the woman, the woman's seed. And Cain was, Cain was the seed of the... wicked one, that is, of the serpent. By influencing Cain to kill Abel, Satan thought he had gotten rid of the seed. So the first method that the devil uses to uh, destroy the seed is what? Trying to kill it. Number three. Now we're going to find another method that the devil uses. Genesis 4, 16 to 24 presents the genealogy of whom? Of Cain. And Genesis 5 delineates the genealogy of Seth, who took the place of Abel. By the way, did you notice there in Genesis 4, 25 that it says that when Cain killed Abel, 
that God gave Eve another seed. Did you notice that the expression gave Eve another seed in place of Abel, whom Cain killed? So in other words, uh, Abel was a seed which would lead to the seed. And when the devil killed Abel, he says, oh, no, no lineage from, wh from whom the Messiah will come. But then God raised up another seed in place of Abel. Now, let's read the note, very important note. Before we are able to discover the devil's hidden pre-flood agenda, we must review a few things about the world before the flood. Between creation and the flood, there was a period of 1,656 years. This is determined by examining the genealogy of Genesis 5. I'm not going to take time to do that, but you look at the ages of the patriarchs before the flood, and you'll find that the flood took place 1,656 years uh, after creation. So that's the first point. The second point, before the flood, human beings lived to be over 900 years old. Though sin had entered the world, uh, their physical and mental energy must have been enormous. Would you agree with that? Imagine a scientist working in a laboratory for close to 900 years. That's why I believe that before the flood they had a far more developed technology than we do today. I really believe that. Um, number three, the world before the flood was very close to its pristine beauty. There were no drastic temperature changes. There was no scarcity of food or natural resources, no huge bodies of water, no huge deserts. Number four, most likely there was very little disease. God had told man to be fruitful and multiply. Imagine how many children 900-year-old people could have. Especially when there was no sterility. Especially when there was no scarcity of natural resources and food. Amazing. There must have been what? Millions, if not billions of people on the planet the day before the flood. And by the way, that's not speculation. I've had uh, computer experts put all of the data into a computer, and uh, they've reached the conclusion, most have reached the conclusion, that the population had to be in the billions. But let's say that the population was in the millions. Still, what's going to happen is very striking. Now let's go to question number four. Is the pre-flood world clear in your mind? Number four. Genesis 6, 1-4, speaks about the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, some Bible teachers have thought that the sons of God were angels, and the daughters of men were humans, and that uh, the relation, the sexual relations between the angels and the human women produce hybrids who are called the giants in the old King James. The Hebrew word is Nephilim. Now I'm going to tell you the reason why I don't believe that. There are several reasons that I put in the note, but let me mention one or two other things that are not in the note. First of all, Genesis chapter 6 makes it clear that there were giants before the sons of God and the daughters of men had sex. Let's read it. Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. It says very clearly that the giants were not the product of the sexual relations between the sons of God and the daughters of men because 
the Nephilim existed even before that. It says in verse 4, there were giants, that is Nephilim. By the way, uh, the word Nephilim means the fallen ones in Hebrew. So there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Were the Nephilim only the product of the relationship between the sons of God and the daughters of men, or did they exist before? They existed before. That's one point. The other point is that there's only one other place in the whole Bible where this word Nephilim is used. And that's in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, where it says that in the land of Canaan there were giants. There were Nephilim. Now, those giants after uh, those giants came after the flood, after all of the wicked people were destroyed. Obviously, those inhabitants of Canaan were not a cross between angels and human beings. They're called Nephilim, the same as the giants before the flood. And so, for these two reasons, plus the reasons that I have in the note, uh, these Nephilim were not, uh, the giants were not the product of uh, sexual relations between the sons of God, angels, as some people believe, and the daughters of men. By the way, all of the Protestant reformers, uh, including John Calvin and Martin Luther, believe that the sons of God were the righteous and the daughters of men were the, lineology, the genealogy of Cain, the wicked. Uh, it's only in recent years that uh, scholars have, you know, because they, they uh, many scholars don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible anymore, so they say this is just a myth that came from ancient Babylon, you know, that uh, human beings crossed with uh, angels and the result was some type of hybrid. And so it has to do with, uh, with recent discoveries in the land of Canaan that are parallel to this. And so they, uh, the scholars just assume that, uh, you know, in the Bible it's the same thing that uh, the myths of Babylon and the myths of Canaan say. Okay, now let's go to the note. Number one. These are additional reasons. Do you understand uh, that uh, because angels don't reproduce, that's another reason? Yeah? Do you understand the meaning of the word Nephilim? It's used after the flood. So they, they existed after the flood. It wasn't a crossing between angels and human beings before the flood because the Nephilim existed also after the flood when all the wicked had already been destroyed. Now, three additional reasons. And by the way, also the word renown. You need to add that too. The builders of the Tower of Babel are referred to by the same name, men of renown, as uh, the individuals who uh, are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. It says, these were the mighty men, men of renown, or men with a name. Okay, three additional reasons. The immediate context indicates that the sons of God were the descendants of Seth, and the daughters of men were the descendants of Cain. Is that clear in the context? What comes in chapter 4? The genealogy of Cain. What comes in chapter 5? The genealogy of Seth. And how does chapter 6 begin? Sons of God, daughters of men. The context indicates that these two groups are members of two different genealogies. Are you understanding my point? Number 2. Genesis is the book about two seeds. Cain and Abel. Sons of God and daughters of men. Isaac and Ishmael. Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. In other words, Genesis is the story of two human seeds at war. In every one of these cases, both seeds are what? Are human. And number three, 
the Bible elsewhere makes it clear that the sons of God are those who have been converted to Jesus Christ. Behold what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that when we've been baptized and we've joined Jesus, we can cry out, Abba, Father, because God is our Father when we're converted. So in other words, the sons of God are those individuals who after sin received Jesus Christ and were converted. Let me ask you, did Adam need to be converted after his sin? Did every single person in the Old Testament have to be converted in order to be saved? Did they have to be born again? Yes, they did. Because no one who has not been born again can enter or see the kingdom of God. Jesus made that very clear to Nicodemus. And so these individuals are sons of God because in the Old Testament they chose Jesus Christ through the sacrificial system, incidentally, uh, as their Lord and as their Savior. So are the reasons clear? Yes? All right, good. Number five. Now we'll see what the devil's agenda was. By mingling the seed of the woman with his own seed, Satan reduced the number of faithful people on the planet to eight. Which method worked best? Trying to kill the seed or trying to, uh, trying to mix the seed? To mix them. Do you suppose that's going to be true at the end of time too? And do you know what the devil's going to do at the end of time? He's going to try to deceive as many Christians as he can. And those who are faithful, his last resort is going to be to try and kill them. Because if he can't deceive you, if you won't follow his deceptions, eventually he's going to try and kill you. Those are the two method, methods that the devil uses throughout all of human history. <laughs> okay, let's go to the note. If God had not wiped out the iniquitous pre-flood race, the whole of humanity would have degenerated to the point where there would be no holy line through which to introduce the Messiah into the world. Do you understand the devil's real agenda behind this whole thing? You see, God has said to the devil, I'm going to send what? A seed to the world. And this seed is going to do war with you. And in the process of the war, you're going to wound his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And what does the devil say? He says, I can't let that seed come because if I do, he's going to crush my head. And so all throughout the Old Testament, what the devil is doing is he's trying to deceive Israel. He's trying to have Israel destroyed. He's trying to uh, deceive everyone, particularly in the line of Israel, because he knows that Messiah is going to come from the line of Israel. In other words, the enmity of Satan in the Old Testament is not against Israel. The enmity is against Israel's Messiah. But people mistakenly assume that the enmity is against Israel. And it's not. Okay, let's talk about the sinfulness of the pre-flood race. The almost total depravity of the race before the flood is described in Genesis 6. Then the Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually. That's quite a description, isn't it? Wow. Notice the words that I used. The wickedness was great. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, uh, Genesis 6 verse 5 is talking about what? It's talking about thinking. The thoughts of his heart were what? Uh, the thoughts of his heart 
we're evil continually, but that's into behavior. Because as a man thinketh, so he is. That's why the devil's trying to possess minds. You know, the devil knows that if he can possess the minds of young people, he can possess everything about them. That's why he's invented uh, rock music. That's why he's invented videos. That's why he's invented uh, 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 certain television programs. That's why he's invented pornography. Uh, he's invented all those things to possess their minds because when he has their minds, he has them. The battle in the great controversy is a battle for the human mind because he who has the mind has you. The one who controls your mind controls your behavior. Is that correct? Yes, that's why the mark goes on the forehead. Number two, Genesis 6, 11 and 12 emphasizes that the evil thoughts of men were translated into what? Into action. The earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their... Now notice, their what? Their ways. What does that have to do with? Action. See, evil thoughts led to evil action, to a wicked society. Now let's go to number three. In Luke 17, 26 to 30, both the story of the flood and the story of Sodom are presented as types of the condition the world will be in at the end of time. This must mean that the sins of Sodom were similar to those which were being committed before the flood. Would you agree with that? Because Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, and immediately afterwards he says, as it was in the days of Lot. So in other words, both of these events illustrate the condition of the world before the coming of Jesus. Now let's read the note. The name Sodom has become synonymous with sexual perversion. That's where we come, where the word sodomy comes from. We know that homosexuality was practiced in the cities of the plain, even to the point that the men of Sodom wished to have sexual relations with the angels who visited Lot's house. In fact, they said, uh, uh, the wicked men said, bring out those two men that are in there, because we want to know them. And imagine that Lot had become so corrupted by Sodom himself that he said, no, not the two men. I have two daughters that haven't had sex yet. You can have them. Imagine. But there was more than homosexuality. There was sexual perversion, sexual aberrations. It says also that Lot's daughters had learned the ways of Sodom very well. They made their father drunk so they could commit incest with him. And by the way, the two sons, Moab and Ammon, uh, was it Moab? Yeah, Moab and Ammon uh, became the progenitors of two of the most wicked nations of antiquity as a result of uh, the daughters of Lot committing incest with him. Now, Ezekiel, next one, number four, Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, explains that Sodom had become selfish and materialistic. She and her daughter had what? Pride. Don't forget that word, pride. You know, and, uh, the Apostle Paul in the catalog of sins at the end time says that men will be lovers of the, their own selves. So you have pride, fullness of what? Of bread. In abundance of? Idleness. So notice, pride, an abundance of bread or goods, 
in abundance of idleness, neither did she strengthen the hand of the what? Of the poor and the needy. In other words, they were ultimately selfish and materialistic. They didn't think about anybody else, about helping anybody else, than whom? Than themselves. Did you read the catalog of sins in 2 Peter 2, 4-22? It's depressing. Every time I read it, it's so depressing to read that list. Uh, and by the way, it's talking about, it, it talks about the flood, then about Sodom and Gomorrah, and it gives this catalog of sins. I mean, it's horrendous what is said there, the practices uh, uh, that were taking place before the flood. Uh, in our world, of course, is uh, coming to the point, uh, uh, to the same point. Now, I want to put a chart here on the board so you can visualize how this story uh, typifies what is going to happen at the end of time. There are four key points of time that I want us to notice. Point number one of time is in the light of the wickedness that existed in the world, God raised up Noah to preach. We're going to call this the period of probation. The period of probation for the pre-flood race. And so that's what we're going to discuss right now. We'll complete this chart as we go along. So the first stage is probationary time. Number one, before the world was destroyed, God sent a powerful worldwide message of warning. By the way, uh, there were inhabitants all over the world because it says that the whole earth was filled with violence. Did you notice that? The whole earth was filled with violence. Noah was a preacher of what? Of righteousness. Now let's read the note. Judged by numerical standards, Noah's evangelistic crusade was a tragic failure. I don't know what the conference president would have said back then to Noah. <laughs> you had a good point. He wasn't on the boat. <laughs> now that doesn't mean that our conference president isn't going to be on the boat don't get me wrong and don't get me into trouble <laughs> just imagine of the millions of people who lived on the planet only eight persons responded and they were all members of the same family if the story of Noah represents what will happen in the end time do you suppose that the majority will be on God's side? Noah did not preach a smooth message. He denounced the sins of the antediluvians, that means the pre-flood race, and called them to repent and allow God to what? To change their behavior. Number two, Noah not only preached a message, but built what? An ark. That's important. He not only talked, he worked. You know, God says to Noah, Noah, I'm going to send a flood to the world. And Noah says, thank you, Lord, for this great revelation that you have given me. And so he relays the information to the pre-flood race. He says, God has told me that there's going to be a flood. And the people say, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, the Lord will provide. I don't think so. There's a reason why God told Noah not only to preach, but to work. Let's read the note. 
His words were backed up by his actions. Imagine building a transatlantic boat on dry land when it had never rained. Did, with Noah showing with each nail that he pounded into the boat that he believed his message. Yes. You see, his, his works were where his faith was. He invested all his time, efforts, strength, talents, and resources into the building of the ark while the rest of the people were saving for a rainy day. <laughs> Boy, you're slow tonight. <laughs> How much of what they saved survived? So what are we doing saving bunches of money and piling up houses and piling up cars? If we're doing that, we don't even believe what the Lord says. We should be investing it in God's cause. Should we? And live frugally. I didn't say stingily. I said we should be frugal. And, and whatever is not absolutely necessary for our life, we should be investing in God's cause. If we really believe that Jesus is coming soon. Building the ark was not one job among many. It was his primary task. Notice that it was his building of the ark which condemned the world. Did you know that? Did you notice that? It wasn't the preaching. Primarily, it was the building of the ark that condemned the world. Noah did the absurd because he believed God. Faith simply means trusting God enough to do what he says. That's what faith is. But you cannot trust God unless you love him. And you cannot love him unless you know him. And you cannot know him unless you spend time with him. Number three. Noah's preaching was accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit who was striving with human hearts. So was the preaching, was the preaching given power by the Holy Spirit? Yes. In fact, the Hebrew word dun, strive, means to plead a cause, to contend, and it's translated many times to judge in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit not only strove with human hearts, but in the process, the same Spirit was also judging them based on their response to his pleading. In other words, as, he, as the Holy Spirit, through Noah, presented the message, the decisions that people made sealed their destiny. In other words, they were judged by the preaching of Noah. Are you understanding what I'm saying? You know, when truth is preached and the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart, the Holy Spirit says, this is true, you need to accept it, you need to live it, really, the ball is in your court. If you choose to accept, you're bringing salvation upon yourself. Actually, God is the one who's saving you, but by your decision, you're allowing God to save you. If you reject, you're bringing judgment upon yourself. By the way, that's what it means in Exodus where it says that, that uh, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Some people have trouble with that. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the, what they forget is that several times in the first part of Exodus, it also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It uses both expressions. Pharaoh hardened it and the Lord hardened it. Well, the way that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart was by preaching the message through, through Moses and Aaron. As Moses and Aaron revealed God's truth through the power of the Holy Spirit, what did Pharaoh do? 
He hardened his heart. So God, by presenting the message, the response of Pharaoh was hardening his heart. You know, God isn't to blame for Pharaoh hardening his heart. God gave the message. Pharaoh just reacted against the message. Uh, you know, I like to use this illustration. The sun can shine on uh, clay, and what does it do with the clay? It hardens it. The same sun can shine on ice, and what does it do? It melts it. See, the sun, Jesus, shines upon human hearts. And human hearts can react by hardening, or human hearts can react by melting before the power of God. But ultimately, God is not responsible if people reject the message, as the people before the flood did. The pre-flood race was given a period of probation of what? 120 years. As soon as Noah's preaching was over, the what? The door would be shut, and probation will be, would be what? Finished. Let me ask you, when the door closed, did the work of the Holy Spirit come to an end? Yes, it did. Did the preaching of the gospel come to an end? Was everybody's destiny determined before it started to rain? Yes, very important point. Number five. Noah's message was accompanied by a powerful what? Miracle. And by the way, the Hollywood version is wrong. You have Noah and his sons going out and hunting down the animals and putting a rope around them and yanking the animals and trying to get them to come onto the ark. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the animals obeyed the voice of God and went into the ark to Noah. In other words, Noah was the welcoming party. He stood at the door. Yes, lions in, elephants in, oxen in, rabbits in. And he kept the log of all of the animals as they entered the ark. Now, why this powerful miracle? I believe that when you look at the book of Jude, we understand why. The miracle of the animals obeying God and entering the ark seems to indicate that human beings had fallen below animal level. This is the reason why Jude 10 calls them brute beasts. Sometimes beasts are wiser than human beings. And if you don't believe that, remember Balaam. Remember the story of Balaam? That donkey had more sense than Balaam ever did. You know, Balaam was going to curse Israel and he came to a place where there was a big embankment on one side and there was a big wall on the other and the little donkey could just barely fit and the donkey stopped. And so Balaam starts beating the donkey to get the donkey to go and he wouldn't budge. And so now he beats him even, even harder and, and tells, come on, get going, you donkey, you brute beast. And, the, and the, uh, you know, the donkey wouldn't budge. And so here he's beating the donkey, and suddenly the donkey turns and says, Why are you beating me? <laughs> I'll tell you what, if I had a donkey speak to me, I'd be out of there in a hurry. But Balaam was so mad, he answered the donkey. <laughs> he says, What I ought to do is kill you instead of beating you. And then the eyes of Balaam were open. The brute beast could see what the prophet couldn't. See, see the lesson that we're learning here? And his eyes were open, and he saw in front of the donkey the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn before him. The donkey had stopped before the angel of the Lord, and the prophet could not see the angel. In other words, the animal had more sense than the prophet. And before the flood, the animals obeyed God, and the human beings did not. 
Number six. The earth was not watered from above, but rather a what? A mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the earth, of the, of the earth or of the land. Uh, interesting that God created an automatic sprinkler system for the whole world. Not for your lawn, but for the whole world. Now, let's read the note. The planet was covered with water before creation. Correct? On the second day, God placed part of the water above the earth and part of the water under the earth. The water above provided a uniform climate. The whole world was indoors. In other words, the world was like a gigantic greenhouse. That's the reason why they found fossils of tropical plants in the North Pole. In the polar regions. Say, how could there be tropical plants there? Because there were no polar regions before the flood. In fact, I believe at the flood, the earth was tilted slightly in its axis. And of course, the canopy that made this an indoor world came down. When the windows of heaven were open, the canopy of water came down. Now let's continue here. On the second day, God placed part of the water above the earth and part of the water under the earth. The water above provided a uniform climate. The whole world was indoors. And the water below sprinkled the earth. At the flood, God did not have to create water. He merely brought the waters above back down and the waters below back up. Just imagine Noah trying to convince the pre-flood race that it was going to rain. This appeared illogical, unreasonable, unscientific, and empirically absurd. And yet Noah preached on. Just imagine what the great teachers of the universities were saying. The sociologists. Sociologists were saying, man, this guy's a menace to society. The psychologists were saying, this guy needs to have a psychological or a psychiatric evaluation. The scientists were saying, this is scientifically impossible. The historians said, there's no record of anything like this ever happening. The theologians said, God loves everybody too much for something like this to happen. All of the experts thought that it was impossible. And yet, what did Noah do? He preached. And he built. Now, let's talk about the close of probationary time. When Noah finished building and preaching, the Lord, who shut the door? The Lord shut him in. In other words, the door of probation was shut by God. Note, when the door of the ark closed, the saved were saved and the lost were lost. After this, there would be no changing of sides. At this time, the Holy Spirit ceased to strive with the hearts of humanity. Although those outside the ark were lost when the door shut, they did not know it until it started to rain. Let's put this here on the board. Point number two, the door what? The door closes when the Holy Spirit is withdrawn and no more preaching. Everybody's case is decided when the door closes. Now let's go to number two. Noah and his family were in the ark for seven days before it started to rain. Have you ever wondered why God left Noah and his family in the ark for seven long days before it started to rain? Let me ask you, could God have made it rain the same day they went in? For some reason he didn't. Because this becomes a figure of what? 
or an illustration of the end of time. Yes. God could have made it rain that very day. But the faith of Noah and his family was what? Tested to the utmost during this period. They must have wondered, will God fulfill his word and send the flood after all? This was a time of triumph for those outside the ark. Imagine each day that goes by and there's no rain. The people outside, no doubt, become more and more daring. And it was a time of apparent defeat for those who were inside the ark. Because apparently time went by and they were not vindicated by God. We can imagine the ridicule and the imprecations of the multitude. In fact, probably God protected the ark as well, uh, you know, after Noah and his family went in during that period of seven days, uh, because I can imagine the multitude becoming more and more daring each day, although the Bible doesn't specifically say that. But, uh, but it becomes very clear that the faith of those inside is very much tested, and those who are outside obviously became more and more daring as time went by, and they didn't see anything happen. But then, the unbelievable happened. Imagine, the day of the flood, some things start appearing in the sky that the, that the wicked people have never seen before, clouds, and suddenly they see a bolt of lightning go across the sky, and they hear the rumble of thunder, and then they start feeling little drops of rain falling from heaven. How do you suppose they felt? Listen, folks, their hearts must have sunk. Did everybody want to get in the ark now? Yes! Let me ask you, if God had opened the door of the ark and let them in and protected them during the flood, what would have happened after the flood? They would have been exactly the same. Because they would have jumped on the ark because they were afraid. Not because they recognized that their sins were an offense to God. You see, they were sorry that they were going to be destroyed. They weren't sorry because of their sins. It's different to repent of your sins than it is to admit your sins. It's different to admit than it is to confess. Say like Achan, when he got caught, he says, yes, I did it. But he wasn't sorry he did it. He was sorry he got caught. On the other hand, when David committed adultery and murdered Uriah, he truly was sorry for what he had done. He wasn't sorry about the consequences that he was going to suffer. He was sorry for the sin, not the result. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Uh, you know, it's like I've had the experience. Uh, I taught six years uh, in a university in Medellin, Colombia. And sometimes I had, a, had students that, uh, that would uh, copy from another student in the test, starting to be preachers. Boy, unbelievable. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, would, I would see them and I would take the test. I said, you have, you have totally uh, failed this test. And uh, sometimes it was a very important test. And so a student would say, Oh, Pastor, Pastor, I'm so sorry I did this. Would you please have mercy and would you please uh, not, not make me fail this test because I'm not going to be able to graduate. And so I moved to mercy. We'd say, okay. 
um, I'm going to give you another chance. And so I'd give them another test, you know, to, because they were, she said they were sorry, and they repented from what they had done. But the interesting thing is, on the next test, there they were cheating again. <laughs> you see, they weren't sorry because they thought that cheating was wrong. They were sorry that they got caught. And that's the difference between the people inside and outside the ark. Those outside the ark, they were sad that they were going to be destroyed, but they weren't sad because they realized that their sins were a terrible offense against God. Now, let's go to the cataclysmic, uh, cataclysmic flood subtitle. The flood was a worldwide cataclysm. In fact, that's the word that Jesus uses, as I mentioned in the New Testament, cataclysmos. The regular word for flood is potamos, but this is a special, this is a special word used only for the, for the flood of Noah's day in the New Testament. Some have thought that the flood was some local affair in the valley of Mesopotamia, or that the flood story is a myth, because there's many flood stories, for example, the epic of Gilgamesh, as an ancient Babylonian flood story, which has many similarities with the biblical story. But of course it's very different because the biblical story says the reason for the flood was the degenerate morality of the race, whereas the flood in the epic of Gilgamesh comes because the people were so rowdy on planet Earth that they didn't let the gods sleep. <laughs> and so the gods were suffering insomnia. They said, let's get rid of these people so we can sleep. Very superficial, trivial reason compared to the reasons that the Bible presents. Let's talk about uh, the reasons for a worldwide flood. The New Testament authors understood the flood to be a historic and worldwide event, correct? If we question the account of Moses, we must question also the reliability of Jesus, Peter, and Paul. That's a good enough reason for me. But there's more. Genesis 6, 5 and 11 to 13 tells us that the whole world was filled with violence. Worldwide violence would necessitate a what? A worldwide flood. Why would God put Noah, his family, and the animals in a boat if this was to be some local flood only? Could they not have migrated to another location? What need would there have been to preserve the species if this was a mere local flood? The species could have survived elsewhere. In Genesis 7, 4, we find that God destroyed all living things which he had made, as a reference to creation. If creation was a worldwide event, then the destruction of all things which God made must also have been worldwide. The language of Genesis 7, 17 to 19 is unmistakable. The waters rose above the earth, prevailed, and increased, and greatly increased, prevailed exceedingly. This type of language would be meaningless if this was a local flood. Genesis 7:19 is too clear to be misunderstood. And all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. What part of whole heaven don't you understand? Genesis 7:21 says that all flesh died that moved upon the earth and every man. Genesis 7:23 and 24 says that God destroyed all living things and only Noah and his family remained. Genesis, obviously not 78, <laughs> Genesis 7, verses 7 to 10, tell us that the birds which Noah sent out of the ark could find no resting place. This would not have been true if it was a local flood. Correct? 
Besides, God's promise of Genesis 8, 21 and 22 about the rainbow would be meaningless at best and false at worst if this was some local flood. Because God said that he would never cover the whole earth by a flood again. If this was some local flood, there's been lots of local floods since then, so God lied. Are you understanding me? All nations of the world descend from the survivors of the flood. You look at right after the flood, you have Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And all of the nations of the world come from them. Which means that it must have been a universal worldwide flood, because the world was populated from that very place. Memories of a worldwide flood appear in every culture on the planet. This must mean that these stories go back to an original source. And finally, the fossil record and the topography of the earth indicate that at some time past, there was a major worldwide catastrophe. Fossils can be found all over the world, not only in certain places, all over the world. Fossil animals have been found upright with food still in their mouths. Other fossils reveal animals which were crushed and dismembered before they were buried. So geology, science also shows that there was a worldwide catastrophe. Is that enough reasons? <laughs> I hope so. The first one was enough. The biblical reason. Number two, page four. When the flood came, the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the heaven was open. Oh, the windows, yes. The windows of heaven were opened. In other words, water came from where? From above and below the earth. Now let's put, let's continue our picture here. Uh, we have a period of seven days. The cases of everybody have been decided. Could we call this a time of trouble? What do you think? Is it a time of victory for the wicked? Is it a time of tremendous trial for the righteous? Yes, it is. Do the wicked know they're lost? The wicked have no idea that they're lost. Now, water from above and below. Number three. Noah and his family were on the earth during the destruction, but they were what? But they were saved or protected or shielded by divine power. That's a thought question. Let's read the note. The world during the flood returned to pre-creation chaos. Would you agree with that? It was totally covered with water as before creation. It was dark. It was empty and in this disorderly state. All the wicked perished during this period. What do you suppose happened to Satan during this time? One author has stated, Satan himself, who was compelled to remain in the midst of the warring elements, feared for his own existence. The same happened to Satan at the flood, as will happen to him during the millennium. He will be bound to this dark earth and will lose his power base of people because they will all be dead. So the devil knows exactly what he has in store because it's happened once before. So let's put here, uh, by the way, that this is the second point of time, is the closing of the door. The third point of time is the time of trouble, the seven days before it starts to rain. And then point number four, you have the what? You have the destruction. And then, of course, if you want to add here, you also have a period during which Satan is what? Let's put here number five. Satan is, is bound. And by the way, this is, a, this is the context within which we need to understand the spirits in prison. They were imprisoned at the time of the flood. And they were disobedient. And they did, did deceive the pre-flood race. 
It's in this context that we need to understand that difficult text, and we'll deal with it um, next Sabbath. Okay, number four. When Noah and his family came out of the ark, the earth had been what? Cleansed of sinners and was totally changed. The world which then what? Which then existed, perished, being flooded with water. So, point number six, I said that there was actually four, but uh, if you conclude what happens after the destruction, you have two additional points, is that they come out to a world that has been cleansed from sinners. Obviously, they're sinners too, and soon the human race becomes corrupted again. But it's still a figure of what's going to happen at the end of time when the world is cleansed from sinners. Yes, it's a type. By the way, the type is never as perfect as the anti-type. In other words, uh, the, the illustration is never as complete and perfect as what it illustrates. Take, for example, in the Old Testament, the lamb is a symbol of whom? Of Jesus. But Jesus isn't a four-legged woolly creature. And I don't mean that, uh, that to be irreverent, but I want, to, I want to make a point. In other words, the type can only illustrate certain things about the future. And it's an imperfect illustration most of the time. Okay, now let's see what Jesus had to say about the flood story. In Matthew 24, Jesus drew a parallel between the flood story and his coming. But as the days of Noah were, so also, see there's a comparison, will the coming of the Son of Man be? Number two. The word until is used twice by Jesus in Matthew 24, 38 and 39. The pre-flood race, we're eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, what? Until the day that Noah, that's here, when probation closes, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the what? until the destruction of the flood came. In other words, let me ask you, was there something that the, that the pre-flood race did not know between the time that the door closed and when it started to rain? According to Jesus, was there something they didn't know between when the door closed and when it started to rain? What didn't they know? They did not know that they were what? That they were lost. That probation had closed. Does probation close before the world is destroyed? Yes. yes. And folks, this is of such critical importance. You see, what the devil has done is he's, he's deceived the Christian world into thinking that really what's going to happen is the church is going to be, a, going to be raptured to heaven so that they can be protected from the tribulation. Whereas the Bible teaches that when the door of probation closes, God's people will have been sealed to protect them in the tribulation. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And for those who don't think that they're going to go through the tribulation, they will not have the necessary faith to go through because they never believed that they were going to go through in the first place. Are you understanding why the devil, why the devil wants people to believe they're going to be taken out of the world before the tribulation? Because if you believe you're going to be taken out, why should you prepare for something that you don't believe you're going to be in? Yes, Gene. Of course. The coming of the thief has two stages, right? Says that Jesus will come as a thief in the night. 
And when it comes, everybody's what? Sleeping. Have the people been surprised? Well, let me let me let me illustrate the point so you can understand it better. Um, you went to bed at night. You said sleep won't come tonight, so you left your doors open. Everybody went to bed, sound asleep at midnight, and the thief comes and moves the knob, and lo and behold, the door is open. So the thief goes in real quiet, and he steals a uh, television set and VCR and the video camera and the computer and steals all these things. He goes out. Let me ask you, has the thief surprised those who live in the house? Do they know they've been surprised? They don't know. When are they really surprised? When they wake up and they see everything gone, they say, the thief came. But the thief came before. They were actually surprised before, but they realize it in the morning when they wake up. That's what's going to happen at the end of time. What's going to happen is Jesus is going to close the door of probation, and that's the visiting of Jesus as they what? As they leave. How many people in the world are going to realize that the door of probation is closed and that they've lost salvation? Most of the people will, won't know because they haven't been what? Haven't been watching the way Jesus said. And so they will have been surprised, but they're unaware of it. When will they realize that Jesus came, the door closed as a thief, and that they're lost? They will realize that when Jesus is coming on the clouds of heaven with great glory, but then, as with the visitation of the thief, it will be too late. Are you understanding me? Tom Dorsey. I think there's a second part of that uh, a lot of them don't think about it. And that's those who feel like they're going to be a second chance. Oh, yeah. You, you know, the thing is, uh, Christians believe in second, third, fourth chances. Let me tell you why. See, if you don't make it in the rapture, you'll still be here in the tribulation, and then if you join the tribulation force, <laughs> in other words, you join the faithful so you can be saved, even though you didn't go the first time. But then, if by some reason you don't accept the Lord during uh, the period of the tribulation, and Jesus comes back to set up his everlasting kingdom, and uh, somehow you survive the coming of Jesus, then you have the millennium to repent. That's the idea. So you have a second chance. You have a third chance to be saved. My Bible tells me that it is appointed man to die once, and after that the judgment. That's it. Today is the day of salvation. There are not multiple opportunities. While we're alive, God gives us multiple calls. But if you miss the rapture, you're not going to have the chance in the tribulation. And if you miss the, the accepting Jesus in the tribulation, you're not going to have the millennium. The fact is, folks, that when probation closes, it closes for the whole human race. That's it. There's no more changing size. Is this clear? Raise your hand if it's clear. Okay, let's talk about the end time fulfillment of the story. The Apostle Paul provides a long catalog of what? Of sin, which will characterize the world in the last days. The list begins with lovers of, of themselves, selfishness, the root of all evil. And ends with lovers of pleasures 
rather than lovers of God. This catalog of sins describes the very conditions which existed before the flood. Number two, the Apostle Paul also warned Christians not to be unequally what? Yoked together with unbelievers. In fact, he says, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. We are reminded that the one sin which led to the demise of the antediluvian race was the mingling of the righteous with the unrighteous. This is why God calls his end-time people to come out of Babylon. You can't reform Babylon. You can't make Babylon better. You're not going to convert Babylon. And the church today says, well, you know, let's use the methods of Babylon. That way maybe the Babylonians will feel comfortable and we can draw them over. Forget it. Doesn't work that way. When we join Babylon, supposedly to reach them with the gospel, ultimately we will end up going to the Babylonian side, not them to the Lord's side. Number three. The three angels of Revelation 14, 6 through 12 deliver God's end time Noah message to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This message calls upon the world to what? Fear God and give glory to him because the hour of his judgment has come. Was the hour of God's judgment come in the days of Noah? Yes, remember the word dune? The Spirit comes and Noah preaches the message. People are opening or closing the door. They're, they're bringing judgment upon themselves by their decision. And fearing God and giving glory to Him and keeping his, his commandments. That's what it's all about. Number four. This message is accompanied by the power of the what? Of the Holy Spirit. Just like in the days of Noah. Because it ripens the world and divides it into two camps. Number five, God's people are to make the cause of God their top priority. Immediately after comparing the days of Noah with his coming, Jesus gave the parable of the faithful servants. The parable of the ten, the parable of the, and the, and the story of the sheep and goats. By the way, did you notice that all of those parables tell us how we're supposed to live while we wait? You get that point? How are we supposed to be treating people while we wait? In that you have done it unto one of these, at least my brethren, you have done it unto me. Uh, yes, ring. Which one is that? The last one? The parable of the ten talents is Matthew 25, 1 to 14. Ten virgins, excuse me. And the parable of the talents it's Matthew 20, that should be 25. 25. 25. Let me mark that so I can correct that. 25, 14 to 30. And the story of the sheep and the goats is Matthew 25, 31 to 46. How are we supposed to be using our talents while we wait? Huh? We're supposed to be multiplying them, right? This is not money talents. No, this is, this is talking about, it's, well, it's money talents in its original context, but it's talking about investing everything we are and everything we are, we have, in the cause of God. Uh, how are we, what are we supposed to be doing with the Word of God? Ah, we're supposed to have our lamp what? Burning. Supposed to be praying for the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's things we're supposed to be doing. Jesus said, occupy until I come. Number six. 
The contrast between the number of the righteous and the number of the wicked is given in Revelation 9.16 and 14.1. Did you notice that? The righteous are what? 144,000 and the wicked are 200 million. I would say those are kind of uneven odds. Don't you? Yes. Number seven. When the final message has been delivered to the world, the door of probation will close. This is seen in Revelation when the temple is filled with what? With smoke. And no one, by the way, this is right after the three angels' message. It's like, just like after, right after Noah preached his message, the door closed. In Revelation, right after the three angels' messages, the door closes. And so it says no one will be able to enter it until the seven last plagues have been poured out. That means that probation has left. Because in order to be saved, you have to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, according to the book of Hebrews. The moment when probation closes, a voice is heard which says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Unless you, you wonder whether that's talking about probation closing before Jesus comes, the very next verse Jesus says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his works. So in other words, this is talking about the close of human probation. No longer probation for uh, a small group, but for the whole world. Number eight. The destruction of the world does not come precisely when the door closes, does it? After Michael stands up, which by the way also indicates the close of probation, there will be a time of what? Of trouble, such as the world has never experienced. And then God's people will be what? We're not going to amplify on this because I talked about the experience of Jacob, Jacob's trouble when his brother was coming to destroy him, just that like it's going to happen at the end of time, and how Jacob uh, you know, hung on to the angel. It reminds me of the story of the, uh, of the widow that's in the note. You know, she kept on coming to this judge. And the judge put her off and put her off and put her off. And she kept on insisting and insisting and insisting. So finally the judge says, oh man, this lady is such a pest. I'm going to give her what she wants just to get her off my back. And then Jesus makes the application of the parable. He says, if an unjust judge will answer the pleas of a widow to get her off his back, how much more God will answer the pleas of his people because he loves them. In other words, he's contrasting in a certain way these two stories. The widow's attitude is parallel to the end time, people. But it's contrasting the experience of the judge with the way that God is. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Unless you're wondering whether this parable of Jesus applies to the end time, it does. Because immediately before, Jesus is talking about the days of Noah, and he ends the parable by saying, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith in the earth? In other words, is he going to find faith like this widow had? And by the way, what does a woman represent in Scripture? What would a widow woman represent? <laughs> See, she, she had nothing. She was totally destitute. Let me ask you, is the church going to reach that position where they've lost, lost all human support? Yes! And then their only hope will be in the judge doing what? Doing what is right and intervening for them. And by the way, this little widow had an adversary. It's the Greek word antirikon. 
It's used also in First Peter 5, 8, where it says, Your adversary, the devil, goes about seeking whom he might devour. So the adversary, in the story of the widow, uh, who has taken everything away from the widow, who has taken everything away from the church, is a symbol of Satan. Now let's go to number nine. At last, Jesus will come. Fire from heaven will combine with fire from the earth. This time it won't be water, it'll be what? Fire. And the world will be devastated. Jeremiah saw that the earth was without form and void. Isaiah added that the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. Satan and the wicked will, will be put in prison. Was the devil put in prison during the flood? Oh, yes. He had to stay here and get wet. <laughs> Satan will once again be obligated to remain on the planet. He will have lost his power base because all the wicked are dead. The planet will be dark, desolate, and uninhabitable. After the thousand years, heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Then Jesus will make what? New heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now knowing that the heavens and the earth will be dissolved, we ought to be holy in what? In conduct and godliness. Now let's talk about living in expectancy. What should we be doing while we wait? Do you believe Jesus is coming soon? I believe so. What should we be doing while we wait? Well, let's notice. Walk, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. By the way, that word watch is the same one that Jesus used for the disciples. He says, watch and pray for a while while I go pray to my Father. And what did they do? They went to sleep. See, we can't. In other words, watch means that you're wide awake to what's happening. You're looking at the signs. You're studying scripture. You're up to what's happening in the world. So that means to watch, to be alert. Secondly, take heed, watch, and what? And pray. Yes, we need to pray. So you do not know when the time is. Watch. Pray. What else? Therefore you also be what? Oh, we need to be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. What else are we supposed to do? We are to wisely use or invest that which belongs to our Master. Not wasted on unnecessary things, but invested in the cause of God. Because every cent that we invest in the cause of God will survive. How much of what Noah had did he invest in the ark? And how much survived? He invested everything he had in the ark and everything survived. How much survived of other people? Nothing. Because they invested in their own selfish endeavors. Now is a time where we need to invest in God's cause. And then, of course, we should do what? We should do business until he comes. In other words, just because Jesus is coming soon, we should fold our hands and say, Oh, wait till the Lord comes. We're supposed to do business. We're supposed to work for him. 
Finally, Jesus' parable in Matthew 22. And I didn't mention here the parable of the ten virgins. We're supposed to have our lamps burning, always full with oil of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' parable in Matthew 22, 1-14 is apropos. The man without a wedding garment did not sneak into heaven. You read this parable. Remember the guy, the, 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 uh, the king came to check the garments of the guests? And you know, uh, when he goes, he sees a certain man that's in his street clothes. He doesn't have the garment that was provided by the king for this special occasion. And the king says, hey, how'd you get in here without the garment? And the Bible says that he kept silent. He had nothing to say. And then he was cast out. Do you suppose that this means that somebody's going to sneak into heaven? No. What it means is that the examination of the garments takes place when? Now. During the judgment. Where? In heaven. The separation of the righteous and the wicked takes place before Jesus comes. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.